and we have finally gotten to uh, God's speech, God's contribution to the conversation. And our reading today comes from Job chapter 38, not chapter 19. Uh, It's chapter 38, uh, and I'm not going to read the entirety of this chapter, um, but I'm going to read up through verse 21. But um, God speaks for, um, he has two different speeches, and the first speech goes chapter 38 and chapter 39. Um, And it's all with kind of, he moves towards the animals in chapter 39. Um, But here, uh, God's word to us this morning, the voice of God in the book of Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dressed for action like a man, I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid the cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the, earth, the sea with doors when it burst out of the wo- from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth? and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. For the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it, declare if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light and where the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. I want to skip down now to verse uh, 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord God, we pray that you would meet us in your word, meet us in the whirlwind, uh, meet us in our suffering and speak Um, to us and restore us and strengthen us in trust of you as our creator and as our redeemer. In the name of Jesus, amen. For many people who do not believe in the existence of God, one of the most commonly given answers for their unbelief is the existence of evil. How can there be a God? How can God exist? in a world where there's so much suffering. 
Now, I've always found this to be a curious objection to the existence of God. That's because there's no strict logical relationship between the existence of evil and the non-existence of God. The presence of an evil doesn't necessarily, in a logical way, disprove that God exists. It simply disproves that a God exists that we thought was God. When people object uh, to God's existence because of evil, what they're really arguing against is the existence of a certain kind of God. A God, and this is the hidden assumption of most of these arguments, is that if there is a God, this God is loving and all-powerful and good and wise, and that this God wishes me well and wants me to flourish and to be happy. So when evil is in the world, and it seems to contradict this idea of God, oftentimes our temptation is to just believe that, well, God just doesn't exist. But what they don't usually consider is the possibility that a God could exist that does not conform to our expectations of how the world should run and how it should work. Perhaps there's a God that does not, is not quite as good and loving as we hoped. Perhaps there's a God that just isn't fully in control and can't contain all the evil. Or perhaps there's a God that does not quite have all the necessary knowledge and wisdom to run the world in in a competent way. Those are all real possibilities to explain the existence of evil and the existence of God. And this is really how ancient peoples thought about the issue. Ancient peoples never uh, drew the conclusion that God didn't exist or the gods didn't exist because of evil. They just simply assumed that there were some gods that wanted to hurt them that there were some gods that were capricious and themselves were the source of evil. Now, I raise this issue, I raise this issue to help us identify what you might call the real problem of evil. And the real problem of evil is what you might think of as it's the problem beneath the problem of evil. And the problem is not whether God exists or not, but whether God can be trusted. That's the real problem of evil. That is the problem beneath the problem. Who is this God, and can I trust this God? Is this God who I thought he was? Is this a God that I can entrust myself in the midst of suffering? There's not a point at anywhere in the book of Job where Job, because of his suffering, is tempted to question God's existence. There's never a point at which Job questions whether God's even in control and could have made a difference. But Job does have questions of who is this God that I have put my trust in? Who is this God that I have placed my faith in? A God that, as he says, has walled up my life, hedged me in, walled me up so that I cannot pass, who has set darkness upon my paths, who has stripped me of my glory, has taken the crown from my head, who has uprooted the hope of my life like a tree, who sends his troops upon me like like a siege upon my life, like an invading army. See, Job's suffering is is a crisis of relationship with God. It feels like God has betrayed his trust, violated the terms of the relationship. And God remains silent. God remains silent. He's not answering Job's questions. And so, 
the voice of Job and his friends fill in the silence. Of, and they go back and forth for 37 chapters to a point of exhaustion. And what they're arguing about is God's character and Job's character. Is God just? Is God good? Is Job a sinner? Or is he righteous? Left alone in his pain without a very clear answer or reasons for why he's suffering, Job begins to develop a mental picture of God that is more and more jaded and distorted. Yes, God exists. Yes, God is all-powerful. But this God is also cold and distant and unkind and how he has treated Job. And Job's friends are deeply incensed that Job would dare challenge this God and this, how he runs the universe. And so they leap to God's defense with arguments for God's justice and condemnations of Job's character. If Job is suffering in the way he is, he must have sinned in some way. And so by the end of the dialogues, it's just three cycles of dialogues that go on and on. Not only is the reader exhausted, but it would appear that God is also exhausted. And God finally speaks, and he says, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job and his friends have spoken so confidently of things they simply do not understand. Instead of bringing light to the problem of Job's suffering, they have darkened it. Instead of bringing understanding, they have brought confusion. God will reveal that Job was more correct in what he spoke than his friends. Even though his friends were defending God and, and Job was attacking God, Job was more correct. He was closer, actually, to the reality Nevertheless, both sides have gotten it wrong. Both sides have distorted pictures of God. Both have tried to squeeze God into a box. Both have tried to make God comprehensible within the narrow confines of their own world and experience. And so after 37 very long chapters, God finally speaks out from the whirlwind. And as readers, we have very high expectations of what God will finally do and how he'll answer all the building drama here, what God will say, will dispel all the questions, right? But when you actually read it, it's very strange, right? Very unexpected. God does not address Job's suffering directly at all. Um, instead, what he does is he asks a long series of questions about Job's understanding of creation. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Now, at first glance, when you look at this speech and you kind of, your first impressions of it is this, Job, I'm God. You're not. I'm the creator. 
You're not. I created this universe. You didn't. So you need to shut up and accept your place. Stop questioning me. See, God's response to uh, provides no reasons for his suffering, nor really any explicit words of comfort. I recently heard a story uh, from a friend who said he had a friend that was reading the book of Job for the first time, and when he got to the end of the book, he was so frustrated <laughs> at what God says, he just threw, threw the book across the room. Right? God doesn't give any kind of answers, nothing helpful here. But the question is, what, what is the right response? What, God, what, you know, what should God say? What would satisfy us? Both as readers, but more importantly, as those who are in the midst of suffering. It is true that God seeks to humble Job and how he speaks to him and his friends. God is directing Job, addressing Job directly, but it applies to Job's friends as well. Job and his friends have spoken arrogantly of things they do not understand. But I, I want to remind you of what, of, again, of the real problem, you know, what I called the problem beneath the problem. And the problem is not whether God exists. The problem is, can God be trusted? And that is precisely what God tries to address in his speech to Job, this, his faith and his trust. And the first step in that is um, learning to trust God requires humility in the midst of our suffering. When we suffer, we are especially vulnerable to pride. We're especially vulnerable to pride when we suffer and we experience a lot of pain. And that's because the experience of pain confirms us in the wrongness of the thing that we're undergoing, of our suffering. And it's very easy for us to become distorted in our perceptions of God and of others and very self-confident of our own perspective. But humility and suffering is a recognition that perhaps there's more going on than I realize. That there's more going on in how God has run, how runs and orders the universe in my life that I do not grasp. Things that are beyond me that shouldn't cause me, just because I don't understand them, to overturn my trust in God. Without humility, trusting God in suffering is impossible. God asked Job question after question about the mysterious operations of the physical universe. These are questions that he can't possibly answer. Job, if you can't answer these questions about how the physical universe runs, why do you think that you can confidently understand how the moral universe runs? God's rebuke of Job is strong, but I want you to attend here to the tone. The tone here is not that of like a dictator who's wanting to squash a subject because he dare ask a question. The tone here is more like a firm father that confronts a dogmatic son or child in their pride in terms of their understanding of how the universe works. God does not give Job reasons. For his suffering. But he gives him something far better. He gives him an encounter with himself. God engages Job personally. He engages him directly. He speaks to him. And this transforms Job. If you read all the way to the end of the book after both of God's speeches, Job, this is Job's response. 
I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye has seen you. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye has seen you. I thought I knew you, God. I thought I understood you. But I realized, no, I didn't. I had a very comprehensible God, but you are incomprehensible. You are far more mysterious and wise and glorious than I could possibly imagine. And now I see that. At the end of the book, God, Job is returned to a place of trust, a place of trust and faith in God, but not because he had his questions answered, not because God explained to him or made reasonable to him his suffering, but because he had an encounter with God. And I think this is so important to, to see in, in the midst of our own suffering, that the most important thing for you and for me as we suffer and we question is this a God I can trust, is not necessarily getting the answers we think we want to hear from God for why we are suffering, but simply encountering God, seeing God, and seeing that He is so much bigger that it begins to overshadow all of our suffering and reframe it. We need an encounter with God. We need to hear the voice of God. So how does God speak into Job's pain? What does God do here that helps Job, that gets him to that point where he can trust again. And by application, how does that help us? I want to draw your attention to, um, again, to the poetry of this book. This, except for two chapters, the ones on the ends, the entire book is poetry. Job's is a poet, Job's friends are a poet, but also God is a poet. And God is a greater poet than Job and his friends. <laughs> um, the poetry of Job's friend is okay. Uh, it's, it's a bit cliched and trite, just like their understanding of God. Job's poems are in particularly beautiful and moving. But God's poetry, God's poetry transcends all the rest of the book. Uh, Robert Alter, the, the literary critic, who's translated a lot of Job, he describes chapter 38 through 42 as um, a poem that soars beyond everything that has preceded it. See, if the, if, the, if the book of Job were a poetry contest, a kind of poetry battle, which it sort of is, God wins hands down. God outpoets the others, if that's, if that's a word you can use. He outpoets who has the best verse? Whose verse is most beautiful, most lyrical, most profound and moving? It's God's. And what's interesting is that God does not ignore um, the poems and, and the speech of, of Job and his friends. In fact, what happens is that he sort of gathers up all the sort of broken strands, all the partial threads, the partial truths, the distortions, the platitudes, and he reweaves them together into this complex, deep, extraordinary picture of reality. And I think this is a beautiful picture of how God engages us in our suffering, because he does the same for us. In the poetry of our suffering, what he does is he gathers up all the pain, all the emo volatile emotions and frustrated yearnings and and half-truths, and wounded expressions, and, and he weaves them, and he turns them into something coherent, 
and beautiful. And that's what we see that God begins to do here in, in this chapter. God redeems Job from his suffering by making a new poem out of his suffering. I spoke at the beginning of this series about um, to suffer well requires a poetic process. Um, and by that, I don't mean that you necessarily have to write poetry in order to suffer well, although I actually think that helps if, if you can do that or are prone to that. But what I'm saying is that poetry is, is a distinct way of approaching suffering because suffering is, is not something you can think your way through. It's something that requires imagination. It's, it re, it's, it's deeply emotional and bodily. And the way that suffering attacks us is through disenchanting the world. It's sort of like the, the, the opposite of the Midas touch, right? You know, instead of things turning to gold, everything turns to ash. Everything turns meaningless. So all the things in your life you thought had meaning, when you're really deeply suffering, they just, you touch it and you're like, that has no meaning. It has no joy for me anymore. That's what suffering is like. And, and the, the poetic process is, is a way for us to try to find meaning and purpose and goodness in our suffering. But by the end of the book, right, so Job and his friends have been spinning out verse, spinning out poems, and when they come to the end, they're, they're just exhausted. They have not moved or changed anybody's perspective, and they, they had a certain point of stop shedding any more light on the situation, and that's precisely when God enters the picture. And God begins a new poem that will lift Job up out of his despair. Um, I want to look at this poem a little more. The first thing to notice about God's poetry, it is a poetry of life. It's a poetry of life and joy and light. God's poem in chapter 38 is very much a response to Job's opening poem in chapter 3, which we had a, I had a whole sermon on. And Job's poem in chapter 3 is a poem of death. It's a poem of despair. It's a poem of darkness. He says, it's a poem in which he curses the day of his birth. Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. And Job's poem um, deliberately echoes the creation poem of Genesis 1. But instead of uh, let there be light, it's let there be darkness. Instead of let there be life, it's let there be death. Job seeks, in a sense, through his poem to reverse all of creation. Instead of goodness, he sees chaos. Instead of life, he sees death. Instead of light, he sees darkness. And so in contrast to this poetry of death and despair, God, the creator, confronts Job with a poetry of life and light and joy. Were you, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, when did, <coughs> who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? And who laid the cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? See, Job reinterprets the, the, the night of his conception and the day of his birth as a curse and a cause for despair. But God counters that and says that at the conception and birth of creation, there were shouts of joy from the heavenly hosts. The morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. See, Job evokes darkness 
enveloping darkness to undo all of his life. Let the gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let the clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. But in contrast, God not only contains the darkness, but he commands light. Where is the way of the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and, and say to you, here we are? See, again, Job's poem is one of disenchantment and despair to seek uncreation, and God's poem is a poem of reenchantment that reasserts the underlying joy and life, uncontainable life and light of creation. Now, how does this help Job in the midst of his suffering? How does it help us? What kind of an answer is this? to those of us in the midst of suffering. Again, it is not an explanation of our suffering. It is not a rationalization or a justification of it. But it is a promise from the creator of life and light and joy that however dark and despairing our suffering is, or Job's suffering is, it can never cancel out or overwhelm life and joy in creation. It cannot overtake God's creation. It cannot ultimately take, overtake us. And in this sense, God's poetry is the poetry of new creation. It's the poetry of new creation that precisely what Job needs and what we need in the darkness is the hope and the possibility of new creation, that there can be new life and new joy and new light that grows up even in the midst of the darkness. That God the creator that life and light and joy cannot be contained by the darkness. But there's a second thing that Job's poem also addresses, God's poem, I should say, to Job's perceptions of God. Job perceives God to be cold, distant, even tyrannical. Yes, God is all-powerful. God is mighty, but he is unkind and heavy-handed and mercurial. And God's verse in this poem counters with a very different image of his relationship to creation. Yes, God is almighty. He possesses power beyond measure, but God shows us a different side to his power. And here's what, it's a, it's a, it's a poetry of tender power and divine nurture. That's what, that's what you see in this, these verses. A poetry of tender power and divine nurture. God's relationship to creation isn't distant, but it's personal. It's not just personal, it's parental. It's like God is like a father and a mother to the creation. Has the reign a father, he asks. Has the reign a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost from heaven? God is the father of the rain. It is God's womb as mother from which the ice and the frost come. God is intimately related to his creation in the similar way that a father and mother is related to their children. And it's one of nurture and love and care. And this is true not just of inanimate objects like the seas and 
and weather, rain and wind and storm. It's actually true of all, all the creatures, all the animals of creation. God's like a zookeeper. He doesn't just set the animals free in the wild and say, fend for yourselves, good luck. No, he asked Job, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry for God, to God for help and wander about for lack of food? The answer, of course, is God. God's the one who feeds the ravens. God's the one who feeds even the lions. God is a zookeeper of creation. Now, Job, if I am this intimately related and caring of inanimate creation, don't you think that I am closer in relationship to you? If I'm, if I'm the zookeeper and that I feed the lions and the ravens, do you not think that I will care even more for you? This is precisely what Jesus is getting at in our, from our sacred reading in the Gospel of Matthew, which is actually a, a direct allusion back to this text. Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Or in Luke, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, you are more of value than many sparrows. Job, I love and care for all the animals of creation. They are precious to me, but I love you even more. I care for you even more. Can you trust me? Can you trust me? Again, the problem of evil is really not whether God exists, but whether God can be trusted. And that's what God tries to address to Job when he speaks to him in the way he does. You can trust me. You can trust me. But the problem is, is you need to have a bigger picture, a more incomprehensible understanding of who I am. A well-known quote from C.S. Lewis um, from his book, The Problem of Pain, it says that God whispers to us in our pleasures but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. At the end of the book, when God finally speaks, it says that he speaks from out of the whirlwind. And this is the same word used to describe the storm that takes the life of Job's children. It's a whirlwind. <clears throat> Job's life has been a whirlwind. It has been a storm. And when God finally addresses Job, his voice comes from out of the whirlwind. And I think this is important on many levels. God does not speak in a whisper <laughs> in the midst of our suffering, as Lewis says. Because if he did, we would not hear him through the howling winds of our pain. But it's really important to see here that God does not speak from above the whirlwind. From sh with shouts. Surely God could speak outside of the whirlwind and sort of overpower it with his voice, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't speak from above the whirlwind or outside of the whirlwind, but from within the whirlwind. And this says something very important for how God meets us in the midst of our suffering. 
He is not a spectator watching from the bleachers in heaven. God gets inside of our suffering. He speaks from within the whirlwind. In the suffering and the death of Jesus on the cross, God spoke again from out of the whirlwind. But this whirlwind wasn't the suffering of one of his creatures. It was the suffering of his own son. And from that whirlwind of the cross, God speaks to us an even clearer an even more firm and even more comforting word to us. And it is one that says that despite your pain, I'm with you. Despite your questions and your doubts about our relationship, what, what I really think about you, I want you to know this. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter and whom I am well pleased. Do not be afraid or terrified for I am with you I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Dear child, if I did not abandon my own son on the cross, but raised him up to new life and resurrection, will I not do the same for you? Amen. Lord, we asked um, for faith. I think of the man who came to Jesus when his son was, was sick and throwing himself down and said, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. <clears throat> All of us <coughs> in different ways struggle to believe, and we need you to help us to believe. Help us in our unbelief. We thank you for Jesus that when you speak to us words of comfort, they're not simply of of words of condescension of from above, but actually come from, from below, from the midst of, of real suffering and pain, and that we know that you are with us, and we know that you are the God of new creation, and you can take all of the pain and suffering, and you can weave it into something beautiful and poetic. Please do this, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.